Welcome to Boundaries of Expression, a podcast from Article 19, exploring the limits and challenges to freedom of expression. I'm Joe Glanville. Today we're talking about the right to protest, with guests from Hong Kong and the UK. We're living in an age of protest, from the protests in the new year in Kazakhstan, to direct action in Europe against climate change, demonstrations against COVID restrictions, and the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. Taking to the streets gives us a voice and allows us to stand up to power and push for social and political change. It's one of the best proven tactics for winning and protecting our civil liberties. Protest is a right that is internationally recognised through our rights to freedom of association, peaceful assembly and freedom of expression. States actually have an obligation to enable it. But we're also living in an age of crackdown on protest, in democracies as well as authoritarian regimes. The backlash against popular dissent has been draconian and sometimes lawless. In Hong Kong, a protester was jailed for more than five years in November just for chanting slogans. In the United Kingdom, draconian new legislation is now going through Parliament that will reduce our ability to mobilise and get our views heard. Today, we're talking to three experts on the subject about why the right to protest is important, why it's at risk, and how we can protect it. Patricia Melendez is Head of Civic Space at Article 19. Gully Bujak is Action Planner at Extinction Rebellion. Glacier Kwong is a political activist from Hong Kong, now in exile in Germany. She was also a columnist with Apple Daily, which was forced to close last year. Welcome, and thanks to all of you for taking part today. Gully and Glacier, you're both part of grassroots protest movements in different parts of the world. Gully with Extinction Rebellion, which campaigns for action on the climate emergency, and Glacier with the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, which has been under particular pressure since China passed the national security law in 2020, with many activists in jail or exile. And I wanted to ask you both first why you chose protest as the route to political change. Perhaps I can start with you, Gully. Yeah, sure. Thanks, first of all, Joe, for inviting us here. And it's really good to be with Glacia and Patricia. I guess, yeah, I, I don't know. It's kind of a tricky question. I wouldn't don't see myself as having chosen protest. Um, I've led quite a normal, boring life up until three years ago. You know, I went to uni and got a degree and blah, blah, blah. I did normal jobs. I, I, I think my life has become about act, direct action activism because I see no other way of people without power having a voice in this increasingly corrupt um, society that we live in. And I guess I've always had a strong sense of right and wrong. And it seems to me things are increasingly wrong. And obviously in my context, I'm excruciatingly aware of the collapse of Earth's support systems that keep us alive and the people in power doing nothing about that. And this is the only way that has been proven throughout history to make people with power listen to the people without power. That's sort of the best way I can put it, I think. Does that make sense to you, Glacier? Is is that a, a familiar reasoning for you as well? Yes, I think certainly. This 
feels very familiar, like having strong sense of right and wrong and feeling that it's the only way to change a society. But my experience is a bit different. I, I started quite early. I started when I was 15 and I started with policy advocacy on a copyright amendment bill that is hindering the freedom of speech online in Hong Kong. And as um, I'm, I was involved in this like advocacy campaign, I realized that the political system in Hong Kong is the fundamental problem of all things. Like it's not actually going to be possible for any sort of policy efficacy if the political system fundamentally does not change in Hong Kong. So I became like politically very active and also started participating in political protests and so on so that we can change the political system. And I really agree that this is the only way to make the government listen. But clearly in the case of Hong Kong, they are not listening. But at least we did get some feedback um, through protesting and doing different political activism in Hong Kong. So I'd say I resonate a lot with Bali's experience when it comes to like, why do we choose protest as the way to go? So you were extremely young. You were still at school when you started Glacier and you're both still young. You're both in your 20s. And I wonder if you feel that this is something that defines your generation, where the protest has become a route that seems to be more and more important for your generation. Golly. I think it's hard for me to answer that because I'm living my life. So I think, you know, in my bubble, it feels like protest defines my generation. I think if you zoom out, I mean, it would make total sense if that is if that is the case, because we live in extraordinary times with with the climate crisis and the rise of fascism and crackdown on protests and all the rest. So, I mean, it's a it's a rational response for us people, especially young people, to be using protest as a means of having their voice heard in an increasingly broken political system. And as you say, yeah, we I think living in a time of protest rings true to me definitely especially with this bill that's you know in the UK so prominent at the moment and and in my life as well I guess today my housemate was arrested in our house for um because of suspected involvement in the Insulate Britain protest last year so for me it does feel like we're living in a time of protest and that means a time of crackdown on protest um, and it's getting getting more and more close to home I guess. So your housemate was arrested today? Yes. Wow. And were you there? Yeah. And what happened? Nothing. I mean, it didn't take very long. Um, they, they've they arrested a few people in the last couple of days. So we were we were sort of on, on edge thinking that they might come. And yeah, a few officers turned up, uh, put her under arrest and then seized her, her laptop and her phone and took her to the station. God, that must have been incredibly stressful for all of you. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is stressful. But I think that's part of, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear what Glacier says about this. But it, I guess it's just become so part of our life now. I didn't really, like I said, I didn't, I didn't choose protest. But in the last three years, I, I've declared myself in open rebellion against the UK government because they are killing us with their with their negligence on the climate crisis. So these sorts of, we are coming into contact with the state, you know, that, and that becomes more and more normal for me. So something I want to come back to, but this is, you know, that you both pay a high price, don't you, for protest? And you've been arrested yourself, Gully, a number of times. and You've got a court case coming up. Glacier, you're, you're now having to live outside your country in exile. And I wonder about the price that you, you do 
that you are both paying in your personal lives? Glacier. I'd say, like, as an activist, the price you pay, like, as you said, I'm living outside of Hong Kong right now and I can't return because of the efficacy work that I have been working on. I'm basically colluding with foreign forces, simply like sitting here talking to all of you in a way. The price I pay, I, I really don't feel like I am the one who's actually paying the price because I actively chose uh, in the past to be an activist and I constantly choose to kind of have this kind of life over and over again. Like there are moments where I, sh- I, I could have chose to offer, but I didn't. So I'm still here doing like activism and stuff. But I feel like it is the people who are around me who are paying the price, like my friends, my family, like they never chose to have a daughter or have a sister as an activist. They never chose to have a friend as an activist. And that brings them a lot of inconvenience in life. Like they, they can never like tag me on social media. They can never tell too much about there are their friends about me because that would like kind of like put them at risk as well. So I feel very sorry for those who are around me who was actually paying the price for me in a way. And I, I, f- I can definitely resonate with Gali said about having friends arrested because that's basically what's happening in Hong Kong on a daily basis. Like you wake up every morning, you check your phone, you realize some of your colleagues are gone missing, they're arrested or they have been sentenced and convicted and so on. So it's, it's really like an ongoing griefing process that, I think all activists, no matter what kind of field you're in, have to go through at a certain point of their activism that you are challenging some of the most powerful states or powerful governments in the world. And it always comes with a cost. That is, uh, you have to bear legal consequences or other sort of consequences. And it's kind of like giving up part of your personal life for the cause. Patricia, I wonder what you think hearing those extraordinary experiences from Gully and Glacier. As, as the head of Civic Space at Article 19, um, I wonder how often you hear similar stories. Thank you, yeah, Joe, and thank you, Gali and Glacier, for sharing information you know, about your experiences. I think definitely these are very similar stories to what we hear from our regions and the work that our region does in monitoring and hearing from other activists and, and protesters in the different countries. I think, you know, it's really important and significant to recognize that how the space for protest is, is shrinking. It's, it's a short answer. Yes, it is shrinking. And we see a decline in, in the rights that underpin our, our ability to exercise the right to protest, so freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. And, you know, Article 19's re- Global Expression Report last year, you know, saw this serious decline in our right to assembly and freedom of expression. And if we look at other you know, um, monitoring reports like Civicus Monitor on tracking civic space fundamental rights as well, saw that the detention of protesters was a top violation in 2021. So I'm not surprised by what I'm hearing, although of course it is unfortunate that people are not able to express themselves and, and feel secure and for their families to feel secure for the exercise of rights of, of family members. So you're working on a global report about protest, looking at six different countries at Article 19, including Thailand, the United States, Poland and Kenya. And I wonder what the most common tactics are that you're seeing at the moment. I think some of the most common things that we're seeing and obviously also exacerbated due to the COVID pandemic because it was used very much as a a smokescreener way to justify further restrictions. But things that are common to see, law and policy, legal and policy restrictions. Um, this could be anything from blanket bans to introduction emergency laws. 
even unrelated laws um, that you would think, well, that wouldn't apply in the context of protests being applied to intimidate and restrict people. We also see harassment and intimidation by the police and police brutality. And we see this not only during protests, but it can happen in the lead up to a protest that is being organized. You also have the arrest and detention of protesters and forceful disruption and, and violent crackdowns. And a lot of things that we've heard from activists is that actually the violence in some instances starts when the police gets um, involved and the tactics that they use to, you know, interview, manage the protest. And lastly, the other thing that I think maybe we don't pay as much attention to, but it's also impacting people's you know, ability to exercise the right and is something less tangible but very obvious is stigmatization of protesters. So how are protesters spoken about uh, by uh, authorities to discredit the causes, to intimidate them, to create a public opinion that goes against what some of these very important causes uh, protests are, are supporting? And obviously we're looking at these kinds of crackdowns in authoritarian regimes and in democracies as well. And again, I wonder if that's surprising, how many similarities, again, you see in the tactics that are used. I think that is a very worrying trend. The fact that it's not only happening in countries, which we would say usual suspects, that we expect that kind of behavior. Just look at the response uh, a couple of years ago, 2020, Black Lives Matter, or think about the policing bill that Golly was referring to here in the UK. These are not, you know, the usual behavior of democratic um, states in relation to, to allowing and um, facilitating, which is their role, the right of protesters and for people to exercise that right. And I think that decline is one that we need to keep an eye on and also challenge where we can. So to come onto the, the police crime sentencing and courts bill, as it's called, which Gully's already talked about and, and you've just referred to, Patricia, it's currently going through Parliament in the UK. And some of the most oppressive amendments that included new stop and search powers were thrown out in the Lords, the House of Lords this week. But it could still significantly affect our right to protest. This bill still has measures that will go back to the House of Commons that include allowing the police to impose restrictions based on the level of noise, criminalising protests that will just be a protest of one person. And Gully, I'm wondering even with the, some of the worst amendments being removed, what you think the impact's going to be for Extinction Rebellion? I mean, it's, it's hard to guess at, really. I think, like you said, we, we have to remain vigilant. And although we had some, some wins in the Lords, it's more of a, it's an agenda. It's not like a, this bill, it goes beyond this bill, goes beyond these amendments, their, their sort of determination to outlaw any kind of dissent. So... We st- we absolutely have to keep keep fighting it every step of the way. Although I'm, you know, it seems pretty sure that some version of it will come into force. I don't know what effect it will have on us. I think it's a big unknown whether whether it will silence people even more or whether it will galvanise people into action. I I really don't know. I know that I, it's not going to silence me because I feel like I I, I just don't have any other choice. Um, and I know there's plenty of other people in Extinction Rebellion who feel the same way and obviously in other movements as well. And when you think about, like you said, I have a court case coming up in May for an HSBC action and in Crown Court. And But just coming back to what you said about the costs we pay and that that's sort of tied up in how the bill will affect us as people. Like people in the global south are dying 
almost every day um, protecting the environment on our behalf. People throughout history and across the globe sacrifice so much for for different rights that we enjoy today and a livable planet deserves no less so i i think it remains to be seen how it's going to affect us but i don't think it will it will stop people going out in the streets because it, we can't allow it to i'm one of the things that the home office singled out i mean they singled out extinction rebellion and they singled out disruptive protests the disruption caused by Insulate Britain, Extinction Rebellion, have been sort of very prominent in the news. And a question for you, Glacier, is do you think protest has to be disruptive to be effective? I think it really depends on the context if a protest has to be disruptive to be effective because protest, in my opinion, is um, a mean to achieve a strategic goal that you're trying to fight for, whether it be a policy change, amendment in the law, or raising awareness. It's a tool that you have to like actively deploy in order to achieve certain goals. And um, in the context of Hong Kong, it's really sad that we have to resort to disruptive protests in 2019, as we have all seen on the news. On the 1st of July, when some of the protesters were actually inside the Legislative Council chamber, they actually sprayed a slogan onto the walls of the, um, of the Legislative Council. And I think it kind of reflects what, what happened in Hong Kong, is that since the 1997 British handover of Hong Kong to China, we have resort to different means. We try to enter the system by running elections, but then candidates got disqualified or elected legislators get disqualified. So we that road was kind of like blocked and we tried peaceful protests. Two million people were on the streets in early June 2019. And the, those accumulative like feelings of powerlessness kind of contribute to the fact that protesters and participants felt like that they have to resort to disruptive protests so that the government would listen. And in fact, we did get some sort of response from the government, even though it's super, uh, like super negative, they call us rioters basically. But at least you see some sort of changes in the attitude of government. And at least we can sometimes make them listen to what we have to say in that sense. So in Hong Kong, disruptive protests are being used as a tool to do that. But I feel like if we have like a very well-established rule of law system and a very independent judicial system and a democratic system in general, there are chance, chances that we don't always have to resort to disruptive protests because I don't think anybody actually like that. If we have a choice, like I don't think anybody would actually choose to constantly be in activism and be in protest if there is not an imminent danger to our society or in general to, to the world. There's always the risk, isn't there, Gully, of alienating the public, isn't there, with disruptive protests? There is the risk of alienating the public, of course. I think... What Glacier said is totally right that it, it's context dependent, and I an extinction rebellion very much sees itself as one part, one piece of the puzzle. You know, it's an ecology of different movements and different efforts to create change. Like you say, in the courts, that's one arena. We're on the streets causing disruption, but there are other ways to do it. I don't think in our case you could you could take away that piece of the puzzle and still be effective because when we live in a society where the the means of communication is so tightly controlled which even though we do live in a obviously I'm fortunate to live in a more democratic state than Glacier is coming from but it still is controlled by in this country the billionaire press and the mainstream media and when we have a government that is corrupted by 
short-term interests, selfish interests, fossil fuel lobbyists, et cetera, et cetera. It becomes necessary to do something more disruptive, louder to, in order to get attention. And I think for XR, in, in any case, we are beyond the point of just raising awareness because the polls show that the climate crisis is the number one concern for, for British people above Brexit, above the economy, above COVID. So the awareness to a large extent is there, but we still have absolutely no meaningful action and the window for change is, is closing rapidly in that context. We do need to take action that will, you know, get us into the news, that will force will force a selfish government to think about what it is in their interests to do in order, like in terms of responding to us. If we're being disruptive enough, it's in their interests to to enter a dialogue with us. And yeah, it does. As you, yeah, you're right that it it does run the risk of alienating the public. But I think there's a that's a risk you have to take sometimes. And also there's there's ways of doing it that bring people along as well. And, and you know, we're learning that as we go in lots of cases, I think. Protests of disruption actually didn't alienate the public, even though that is not a strategy that a lot of Hong Kongers, a lot of the protesters would identify with or would agree with. But we somehow like developed um, a principle or a doctrine called do not split. That is, we will never point fingers at each other, even though we cannot fully agree to what other people are doing. There are protesters that will strictly stick to the principles of peaceful protest. They will never do something that's considered as illegal in their mindset, like peaceful protest or protests that have obtained the uh, approval of the police and so on. But they will never like be alienated from the general movement itself because we kind of know that we also we always want the same things. But the thing is, um, different people have different preferences and have different principles that they stick to when it comes to like what tactics do they use. And I find it very interesting because this is something that no, none of us in Hong Kong have ever seen, like this kind of solidarity and unity in one movement itself. So I, I find it worth sharing. Thank you. To, to come back to you, Patricia, I'm wondering what Article 19's approaches on how to protect the right to protest and whether you think states need to reframe the way they treat protest. Protest encompasses such an array of proactive actions, you know, online and offline. And I think states need to respect their obligations, disrespect the obligations that they have and fulfill the obligations that they have, both in the ability of exercise and right to expression and assembly, because these rights are the ones that underpin our ability to participate in, in protest. I think there is a lot of guidance at the international level. The UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Assembly and Association provides uh, authoritative guidance. There is a general comment 37 on uh, Freedom of Assembly, uh, Article 21 of the International Covenant of Civil Political Rights, which also provide uh, very clear guidance about what states should be doing in relation to fulfilling their obligations about the right to protest. Protest is an essential way for individuals to express dissent and, and grievances, share views and demand an accountability. And, and the way that states are going about it are basically saying, you know, it's a disruption to public order or a, a risk to national security. And they forget that actually protest is part of public participation and it's part of public order. It's not, you know, separate or, you know, against or, or threat. They always think that it's inconvenience to be controlled or extinguished and, and a threat to society. 
What about protests that some of us may not be feeling so sympathetic with? I'm sure a lot of people listening will feel a lot of sympathy for Extinction Rebellion, also for the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. But what about the far-right protesting or the anti-vaccination protesters? Should everyone have that have their right to protest protected equally, whatever the issue is that they're protesting? I think everyone's right to protest should be protected equally. I, that is not to say that their absolute rights, like, for example, the right to freedom of assembly um, and freedom of expression are absolute rights either. There are some restrictions, and these are particularly relation to prohibiting advocacy of sort of racial, national, or religious hatred that incites hostility, violence, or discrimination. They're very clear kind of moments when, you know, the state is obliged to to intervene. So, for example, I don't know, if a far-right protest that inciting violence of particular groups, you know, there is scope for the state to do that. But I think it's important to allow different voices to be heard, even those voices that we might not agree with or might find offensive in some instances. And uh, the reason we do that is because then we can challenge those views. Thank you. I, w- I want for last question, Gali and Glacier, I want to come back to you. You're both under extreme pressure with the crackdown in Hong Kong and the new legislation in the UK. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how protest movements can survive in such a hostile environment, Gully. I I mean, also, we're coming off the end of so long of lockdown and COVID has completely, you know, destroyed the way we traditionally organise, at least in Extinction Rebellion. It's been, so that's just another thing that is we're sort of trying to bounce back from. It's not easy. I think the answer sort of lies there in a way we our strength is always going to be in our unity and in our numbers. What we can do as one person is is never going to be the same as what we can do as as a movement of, of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people. That's basically the only thing that we have on our side, um, aside from justice and, and truth and righteousness. I think that's the answer that we have to in, in the face of, you know, state violence cracking down and, you, and manipulating the law against us, we have to come back together. And um, as hard as it is in this time, we have to bridge divides and we have to work together. It's got like, it's fascinating what Glacier is saying about their policy in Hong Kong about not, not splitting. We need to get better at that, I think, in the UK and in the climate movement in, in general, certainly, if we because we have, we have to recognise that our the people we're up against are the most powerful individuals and corporations and nation states on the planet. And we're not going to stand a chance unless we unless we come together. So part of that for XR is about speaking to people. And in 2022, we'll be going out on doorsteps on high streets, trying to have as many conversations as we can with other people. We share this you know, country together. We are citizens of the same place. We're citizens of this world. We just need to ha- start having those conversations and be better at listening to each other, I think. And what about you, Glacier? In the case of Hong Kong, it's very hard to, to see any like visible political actions happening on the ground in Hong Kong. So most of the time, it's all depressing news about the current status quo, that it's people being prosecuted, people being convicted and sent behind bars and so on. So my 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 usual recommendation is to take care of oneself, be it you're inside Hong Kong or outside of Hong Kong, because the ultimate goal of fighting for democracy in Hong Kong is to ensure that we can all choose 
the life that we want in the city, like, um, and fight for the chance of returning to the city, basically. So it's, it would be kind of counterintuitive if we sacrifice our own physical and mental health for this cause, because that's the other way around. We should be changing the environment so that we have like better environment for everybody. And so for me, it's always like, uh, ask for help if you need to take breaks reasonably because I know activists is known to be extremely good at abusing themselves for the cause and that's not entirely healthy like from a personal experience I can say that and so I'd say it's always to take care of yourself and also like um, stand in solidarity for each other always be there for each other and try to like maintain a certain level of health in a way and so that you will have the capacity and the capability to reach out to more people and to share your experience so that they will be moved into supporting your cause and i think we also need to do more in terms of raising awareness about hong kong especially in the uk because there are a lot of people fleeing the city that's now residing in the uk so i think these are the things that i have in mind that would be very helpful when it comes to how do we sustain the protest or earn room for protest to happen again in hong kong outside of hong kong for democracy in hong kong thank you glacier um we are now out of time so i'd like to thank all of you glacier kwong gully bujak patricia melendez You've been listening to Boundaries of Expression from Article 19, produced and presented by Joe Glanville, recorded and mixed at Bison Studios in London. If you'd like to find out more about the right to protest and Article 19's work defending freedom of expression, please visit article19.org.